For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That's grace alone. That whoever believes in him, that's faith alone. When you come to the point and you say, God, I'm bankrupt. I can do nothing. I put my full weight in the Lord Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. The gospel, the power to save. In a moment's time, you're born again. The spirit of God comes to live inside of you and everything changes from the inside out. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three and the conclusion of Dr. Brogy's sermon entitled, Sharing Christ with Others. Yesterday, we examined the world's greatest truth and the world's greatest text, as Dr. Brogy reminded us that we should not confuse information with unbelief. Today, he will illustrate the world's greatest test, As lawlessness grows, we will all have to choose who we are going to stand with, the world or God. Pastor Carl reminds us that when we are born again, everything changes, and that we are able to demonstrate through a changed life that our deeds are wrought through a second birth in God. Please join us in the book of John, chapter 3, as we continue. Jesus said, I will lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one will take it away from me. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. When he was arrested, Mark says a multitude came to arrest him, an oikos. Matthew says a great multitude. John says a Roman battalion. A battalion could be 600 or 1,000. He said a Roman battalion led by a Roman cohort. The Greek word is chiliarchus. We get our word chiliism from it. So we speak of the chiliistic reign of Christ. The Messiah is coming back. He's going to reign on the earth. We pray it. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to go up, but then we're going to come back. And he's going to rule and reign and keep all the promises he made in the Old Testament. The concept of the kingdom that Jesus wanted to explain in further depth to Nicodemus, but he needed to enter it before he could explain it. He needed to have new life before he could comprehend it. But the concept of the kingdom is an Old Testament truth. The length of time is given in the New Testament. So a Roman battalion led by a leader of a thousand men comes. Jesus said, whom do you seek? Jesus the Nazarene, and he simply says, I am. Moses is at a burning bush. He sees a miracle bush burning in the wilderness, but it's not burned up. It's a miracle bush. He approaches it, and God says, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And they have this conversation. At one point, he asks your name. God, what's your name? The Jewish people are going to ask me. God said, you tell them my name is Yahweh. You tell them I am whom I am sends you today. Not I was, not I will be, but I am. It's the divine, sacred, covenant name of God. There are many names for God, many compound names for God. But the most special name of God, given in all of Scripture, capital L, capital O-R-D, it's distinguished in our English Bibles, is Yahweh. Whom do you seek? Jesus the Nazarene, Yahweh, and what happens? They all fall back. By the way, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And that word fall back or fall down is found in one place in the Old Testament. When God pushes down the walls of Jericho. Jesus, by taking to his lips the divine name, pushes down a thousand men on his back. He doesn't say, well, we're leaving here, guys. No, he permits them to get back up. No one will take his life. He'll give it. 
He said, you can take me today. He loved his own to the end. He permitted those men to nail him to that cross. It wasn't accidental. It was a choice. It was not those nails that held him to the cross. He had legions of angels he could call down. It was his love, which is the third reason. One, reason number one, your good deeds can't save because they can never remove the stain of sin. Reason number two, they can never satisfy the just requirements of sin. And reason number three is because God is love. God said, here's the penalty, but I love you, so I'm going to pay the penalty. God demonstrated his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, sinners worthy of death, Christ dies for us. But just because he died, it's not automatic. His death is sufficient to save anyone, but it only becomes efficient for you who believe. Only those who looked at the bronze servant instantly lived. So again, verses 14 and 15, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Now, what does that mean, believe in him? By the way, he has already said earlier in John 6, 47, the one who believes in me has eternal life. Not will have, but has. Eternal life is something you can get today. Because eternal life is not simply heaven. This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's knowing the Lord, not just that he exists. All men know he is, exists. When you meet a person who says, I'm an agnostic or I'm an atheist, with all gentleness, just think in your mind, he's a liar. Because that's what he is. He's not an atheist. He's not an agnostic. He may say that with his lips. But according to Romans 1, he knows there's a God. Because God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature are clearly seen through the things that he has made. So that men are without excuse. But just knowing that God exists, even though they knew God, they did not acknowledge him as God. Just knowing that he exists doesn't mean you know him personally. And that's what he designed you for. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O Lord. Pascal, the great scientist and philosopher and physicist, said there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man that cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. You can spend your whole life achieving fame and fortune or whatever is important to you and come up empty because you will in the end because the Lord made you so you could know Him. So what would you say why God should let you into heaven? What is the way to have a new birth? Maybe some of you wrote out in the margin of your mind, I don't know what I would say. What would that tell me as a pastor? It just tells me you're lost. Now, do I blame you for not knowing? Of course not. We're all born not knowing. Whoever will call upon the name of Jesus, he's talking about contextually quoting the prophet Joel, will be saved. But how can you call on Jesus unless you first hear about Jesus? How will you ever hear about Jesus until someone goes and tells you about Jesus? That's his argument in Romans 10. I was 18 years old when I heard the plan of salvation for the first time in my life. I told some people, meet the pastor recently, my grandfather was 86. It's almost like God preserved his life so I could get saved and I could go share the most important thing in the world to me with my grandfather. But if you don't know, it just means you're lost. Some people think they know. Some of you, why should God let you into heaven? What do you do to get a new birth? And you just give an answer of works. 
If you could be saved by human effort, by good works, by obedience to the law, then Christ is dead in vain, Galatians 2.21. He wouldn't have had to have died. He could have just come and met a supermodel, skipped the crucifixion, ascended right into heaven, but he doesn't ascend into heaven until he first chooses to die. The third equation, this is the Protestant Reformation. Do Catholics deny that Jesus is God, died in a cross, was buried in a tomb, was raised from the dead? No. In fact, they are more accurate than many liberal Protestants are. They would affirm those things. They would just say they're not enough. They would say your faith in Christ plus the good works you do will secure salvation. So Luther, on October the 31st, puts on the door of the church 95 departures from Holy Scripture. What's the Roman Catholic reaction? It's called the Council of Trent. They meet from 1542 on a number of different occasions until 1568, and they produce this document. It's a great read. And then just to paraphrase one of the canons, I think it's canon 68, they say anyone who teaches that justification is simply on the basis of grace appropriated by faith and that good works do not help to contribute to that salvation, he is to be damned. He is to be anathema. And of course, Vatican I, Vatican II, 2010, the College of Cardinals reaffirmed that teaching. Look, the problem with that answer, like the one before, two problems. One, it's saying, though you shouted from the cross, it's finished, to telesai. It's a first century Greek word that they wrote on a tax receipt when you paid your tax. They put it out in the margin next to your name. To telesai, paid in full. Though you shouted it was paid in full, it wasn't. Number two, you're not really owning your sin. You see, for so many years, when I said, well, God, part of the reason you should let me in is because I've done A, B, C, and D, and I've never done E, F, and G. What was I saying? Because I'm a good guy. And Jesus said, it's not those who are well who need a doctor. Those who are sick, I didn't come to save, in air quotes here, the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. Unless you repent, you perish. Unless you change your mind about your sin, that it damns you, that it separates you, that it invites the wrath of God, and it needs to be forgiven and cleansed, and you can't do it, you're not savable yet. But when you put your faith in Christ alone, there it is, sola gratia, sola fide. The left corner, grace alone, faith alone. Important catchphrases from the Protestant Reformation. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That's grace alone. That whoever believes in him, that's faith alone. When you come to the point and you say, God, I'm bankrupt. I can do nothing. I put my full weight in the Lord Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. The gospel, the power to save. In a moment's time, you're born again. The spirit of God comes to live inside of you and everything changes from the inside out. That brings us to the world's greatest text. The world's greatest text, verse 16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have, present tense, eternal life. Notice how the verse begins, for, it's gar. In other words, he's helping to expand on the thought that he just gave in verse 15 as to why the Son of Man would be lifted up. God gave His Son simply not by sending Him into the world, but that He might lift Him up on a cross. His one and only Son, His monogene, His uniquely begotten Son. He gave His Son. Jesus did not simply come into this world. He was sent into this world. You and I, we were born into this world. Jesus was sent into this world. He leaves heaven and He becomes a man. 
and he comes for the express purpose of dying for us. Now, there are some brothers in Christ in our nation who say that Jesus did not die for everyone. He just died for a select few, for the elect. And if you listen carefully, you will pick up their wording. Oh, Jesus dies for those who will repent and believe. Meaning the atonement, the death of the Lord Jesus, is only for those who will believe. And they take verses like this, John 10 and verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. There it is, they say. He didn't die for all. He died for his sheep. Now, that verse is not dealing with the extent of the atonement. It's dealing with the intent of the atonement. That when the Lord Jesus died there on Golgotha, that he died especially for those who would embrace the payment that he would make not for those who would ignore it, not for those who would blaspheme it, not for those who would speak evil and disdain it, but for those who would embrace it. He loved us so much. And by the way, the death of Christ is not only the basis of justification, it's also the basis of condemnation in Scripture. No one will be able to say, well, Lord, even if I wanted to believe, you didn't give me an opportunity because Jesus didn't die for me. No, no. His death will condemn you because he made a provision and you rejected that provision. It's like a man who's on death's row and the governor pardons him. If he says, I don't want the pardon, and there's one famous case when a man was to be hung and he rejected the pardon, they had no choice but to hang him. Well, God hasn't provided just a pardon. He's provided forgiveness. And there's a difference. A judge can pardon you, but he can't forgive you. God pardons us. He forgives us. He washes us as white as snow. He imputes the righteousness of the Lord Jesus to you. But listen, you say, well, how is this an expression of Christ's love? For God so loved the world. Seems to me like, how does this show that Jesus loves us? In fact, some people would take John 3.16. I remember Phil Donahue. I was a relatively new Christian. Jerry Falwell, I used to love that guy. He'd get on national TV and he'd get into these debates and he'd charge hell with a squirt gun. And, and Phil Donahue said, well, tell me, Jerry, you got a son, don't you? Yeah, well, if you had only one son, would, would, uh, would you give your son to die for someone else? And if you did, how would that be shown that you love somebody else? I mean, why don't you get off your mighty throne and die for, die for that person? How is God loving us? By giving his son. How is that an expression of the love of God? God demonstrates his love towards us. And how is that an expression of God's love? Why didn't he come down the Father and die? It's a good question. Dr. Falwell had a good answer. Now, there are some verses, by the way, that express Christ's love. The Lord Jesus speaks of how he loved me and gave himself up for me, or Paul quotes that. But this verse is speaking of the Father's love. How is it an expression of the Father's love? Because God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, I might add, are inseparable. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.19. And so, indeed, it is an expression, and I could draw it out this morning, but I won't for time. The Spirit was engaged as well. He is the monogene. He is the uniquely begotten Son of God. Why? Because He's virgin-born. Remember, we don't believe He was created. We believe that the one 
was sent into the world, he leaves heaven as the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary's womb. Let's go finally quickly to the third point, the world's greatest text. The world's greatest test, I should say. The world's greatest test. So beyond the greatest truth, the greatest text, we come now to the greatest test. How do I know if I've really believed? Listen, the demons believe and tremble. How do I know if I've believed? Listen, there's a lot of people who know it's by grace, not by works. They know the plan of salvation, which is a prerequisite to genuine conversion. You have to know that much, and even a child can get it. But you can know that and still die and go straight to hell. I had a professor at Boston College who could articulate justification by grace alone as that history professor taught Luther's position, which was the biblical position, and how God saves a person. But he was a professed agnostic. You can know how to be saved and be lost. So what is the test? Beginning in verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that, he should be, but that the world might be saved through him. Again, the prophet said, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and the child's name will be called God with us. El, God, Emmanuel, God with us. The angel Gabriel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So, verse 17, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. In other words, Jesus didn't come into this world to bring a message of condemnation. Why not? Because we're already condemned. Now, there's not an age of accountability. It might be better to say a point of accountability because I'm certain in God's holy providence that He sees children develop in different levels and in different ways. Understand, God doesn't create a baby and nine months into the pregnancy you have a miscarriage and deliver a stillborn only to send that child to hell because the child hasn't believed. Or God weaves together a baby in a mother's womb and the mother says, I don't want this baby. I'm going to discharge this baby, and I'm going to go to my Planned Parenthood clinic and let them use the vacuum cleaner and tear that baby to pieces. Or as in some hospitals in the world and in the United States, yeah, she's nine months pregnant. We can't grind this baby, but we'll deliver the baby head first, and just before the baby is delivered, we'll put an instrument in the back of the neck, and we'll suck all the brains out. We'll crush the skull. I'm just talking to you about being real. This is what's going on in our nation. This is what one of the parties has in their platform. There will probably be rioting in our streets if the Supreme Court does what's right. Now, I'm holding out a hand of forgiveness, but if you don't call sin, sin, you don't need a Savior. Man's condemned already, and so there comes a point where God sees that child is able to understand. Guilty by nature, we're children of wrath. So he didn't have to come into the world to condemn the world. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He does not believe has been judged, condemned already. You're in one of two groups. You're either in the judged, condemned group or you're in the saved group. There's no in-between. So you have to choose. Which group will you be in? Will you believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved or not? Verse 19, this is the judgment. 
that light has come into the world. By the way, God doesn't take unbelief lightly. It's like the critic who takes apart some masterpiece done by one of the great artists of the world. <laughs> the, the artist isn't condemned. He is condemned. And men can pick apart my message and make fun of me and the message that I preach. But they're condemned. And God doesn't take it lightly. This is the judgment that the light is coming to the world. What's light for? To dispel darkness. Jesus is described in the prologue of John's gospel. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. You see that word explained? Exegizato, it's the word we get our word exegesis from. I'm supposed to exegete the scriptures. It takes time. If you came for a 15-minute sermon, you came to the wrong place. The Lord Jesus put a face on God the Father. He exegeted the Father. He tells us what He is like. That, like, this is the judgment that the light is coming to the world, and men love the darkness. Have you ever heard the somewhat naive expression that God's love is agape love? Actually, the word that's used in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, is the same word that's used here. Men loved agapao. They loved the darkness. It just describes willful love. Sometimes it's positive to describe God's willful love for us or negative of man's willful love for sin. Men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. And by the way, as lawlessness grows, and this is why I did a whole sermon on preaching Christ courageously, because things are heating up. And you have to choose who you're going to stand with. These kids go off to college, and they are in for like a shock. And they stand for Jesus, and they find all of a sudden that they're alone on their dorm floor, and everyone seems to dislike them. You know, we saw two stadiums in the last month filled with hundreds of high school students cheering because some guy who said he's a girl has made the homecoming queen. This is the evil of our day. We need to prepare our children to stand strong in the midst of persecution. And the darker it gets, the more bright the light will be, and some will respond to that, and some will just hate us. But, verse 21, he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Notice the two contrasts. First, in verses 19 and 20, the one who loves the darkness, who does evil, and so they hate the light, versus the twice-born person who practices the truth, and he has no problem coming to the light. So which group are you on? See, when you're born again, you show your life as being rotting God. So this website came out this week. My wife emailed it to me, Jen Hatmaker and all these other people who used to write on evangelical presses like Lifeway. And it's all about born-again homosexuals and how the church needs to accept this lifestyle and embrace this lifestyle. And that we've been wrong for 2,000 years. It was shocking, some of the things I read. But you see, when you're saved, everything changes. 
And you are able to demonstrate through a changed life that your deeds are wrought through a second birth in God. So, as we close, where are you? Are you still on the left side, condemned, separated, by nature a child of wrath under God's judgment? Or have you moved to the right side where you are considered, as Romans 5 and verse 10 says, a friend of God? There's no in-between. You say, how do I move from the left to the right? By faith. What's faith? Faith is taking God at His Word. Hundreds of visitors came last night to our fall festival, and thank you all that worked so hard. I mean, we had close to 2,000 people here, maybe more. I don't know the exact number. It was just packed. But they came because someone told them there was a festival, and they believed a man's Word. That's the nature of faith. You believe God's Word. If you can believe Man's word, you ought to be able to believe God's word because God can never err, and God can only tell the truth, and He'll keep every promise He made. And God Almighty says, today is the day of salvation. When you hear His voice, when you hear the message, I'm preaching the voice of God today from the Scriptures. Don't harden your heart. Some of us, we're going to leave or we're going to turn off the Internet site. We're listening through in just a moment. And you can leave the same way you came in, lost. And that would be a terrible thing because God Almighty wants you to be saved today. And if God wants you to be saved today and you say, not today, Lord, you've hardened your heart and the devil's had a victory because tomorrow morning it won't be easier for you to become a Christian. It will be more difficult. And there may come a time, it could be today, when you put that final callus on the human heart because you would not believe you could not believe. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Maybe today you would like to receive the free gift of eternal life. God would love to give it to you. But He cannot make that decision for you. You must choose whether or not you'll believe the promise that God made, a promise that He could make because of what He did on the Golgotha, on the cross that if you will call on Jesus' name, he will instantly and forever save you. Would you there pray, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I don't deserve to go to heaven. Thank you for coming to earth, for dying in my place, for taking my judgment. Lord Jesus is the risen Lord. I trust you now to save me and to forgive me and to change me. Thank you for the free gift of eternal life. Thank you for forgiveness of all my sins. Make me to be whatever you want me to be. Father, help someone who just prayed that prayer not to be ashamed during this invitation to be willing to make it public, whether here or Graniteville or in Grace. And then as an emblem of the decision that they've made to be baptized. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please join us tomorrow for part one of Sharing Christ in the Last Days. This will be the sixth and final message in Pastor Carl's series on evangelizing. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program 
Sharing Christ with Others, 021. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you would like to help sustain this ministry, click the Give button on our app or at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the Scriptures.